Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the opportunity to chat with Gus Clark, CISO of Tari Labs. Gus gave some insight to how security operates in Johannesburg in South Africa and his perspective on the industry from where he is based in that part of the world. Gus dives into some of his research projects and talks about some of his insights. We also chatted about what he believes we're doing right as an industry and where we could absolutely improve as an industry. If you're keen to learn more about Gus's thoughts, then please keep on listening. So, Gus, we got speaking on LinkedIn because I think that you reached out to me and you said, hey, Carissa, uh, I always like watching your content. And then we kind of had a conversation and then all of a sudden you are now a guest on the podcast, which I'm really excited about because you and I do share similar viewpoints on the industry and you have a lot of different perspectives on, on things that I wouldn't personally consider because you are from another part of the world and you've had different background to me. So before we dive into your particular experience, can you sort of talk our listeners through about how you sort of got into security and what you're sort of doing now? Well, I started pretty early. I think it's pretty much the same narrative that most of the people in the cybersecurity community start with. They had computers at a very early age and I did. I had a Commodore 64. But it wasn't until much later that I got my hands on an actual computer that had a modem attached to it and was connected to a network. So my education pretty much began in the early 90s. On that particular computer, it was actually a school computer that was connected to the network that I had my first experience with IRC, Internet Relay Chat. This is where I got into contact with um, other groups of people who are like-minded. So they're also fascinated by computers, but also fascinated with breaking computers. And slowly but surely, I ended up uh, being on FNET's Darknet group as an opera, and as well as some other lesser-known hacking and export sharing groups. And for many years, that would be my home away from home, and burning the midnight oil, like early until 4 o'clock in the morning, and digging deeper into the underground that was the hacking scene at the time. Um, but that thirst for knowledge stayed with me and also got me into trouble <laughs> at some point. Uh, and as part of my, part of my education, I'd hacked a local ISP and made the mistake of showing a friend what I'd done, you know, ego. And he went and sold me out to the CEO who later contracted me back in, uh, to help with his security. And that essentially was my first job in security. And I realized I could make money from it. And I was still a teenager at the time. Um, there really wasn't anyone around in those days offering security services like that. So word got around, and um, not long after that, I got offered a job at a government agency. And I was there for three years, moved on, and eventually working directly for government as a provincial head of security. I was there for quite a long period of time, uh, following which I was headhunted for Pratis Waterhouse Coopers and spent a few years there building up their red teaming and slash pen testing capability. Then I got a great opportunity to head up security for um, Africa's first ever digital bank, which I think was owned by Commonwealth Bank of Australia at the time. Mm-hmm. It was challenging because I had to build up and bake in security from scratch, but luckily I had the most amazing and supportive team from CBA. And we managed to put it off in record time and launch the bank eventually. 
after the bank launched, I needed something else to push my capabilities. But with something that was a little bit less stress than building a bank. And I came across Tari not long after that. And I really connected with the ethos of the company and the team. And it's been my home since. And so far, been an incredible experience. And I'm thrilled to be part of the journey. You, uh, when you're at Time, I'm pretty sure I was at CBA at the same time. I think that's what we spoke about originally when we started talking. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, I remember. I remember them talking about the acquisition with Time Bank. I, yeah, I do remember that. But that probably would have been around 2015. Well, I actually got a list of the penetration testers because uh, CBA was still doing pen testing for Time mm-hmm. uh, before it was actually called to Time <clears throat> Bank because it was renamed at a later stage. And then um, through CBA's advice, we decided to outsource to a local team here. Um, unbeknownst to me, that was part of CBA's plan. They were slowly but surely backing away to sell off their offshore assets, of which Time Bank was one of them. So well, there was a method in their madness eventually. But uh, there was a bunch of people that I actually managed to reach out to, uh, red teams and pen testers out of the cybersecurity team at CBA, large yeah, team. Yeah, right. Wow, that's such a small world, but not so small world. And I think that was leads me to my next point that I'd like to talk to you about. Can you sort of give a little bit of a high-level overview and lay of the land on what sort of the viewpoint that you guys share in, over in South Africa? And if you can provide a little bit of insight, I think people are genuinely curious. Uh, I don't think I've actually had anyone on the podcast from South Africa at all. So I'm really keen uh, for our listeners to understand, like, how how it goes over there? Right, so I don't, I don't think we we siloed as much as the rest of the world thinks. We definitely do have some really really experienced and formidable leaders in the cybersecurity space, and and there are regular speakers at the top conferences in the world when it comes to cybersecurity. So there are some really good brands that come out of South Africa. That being said, we're pretty much on par, I think, with the with the rest of the world. I do feel that we do have different threats that we face compared to other countries. I think there's a psychosocial aspect to that as well, uh, based on the uh, the culture and the communities within South Africa. But the cybersecurity community itself is actually, over the years, has definitely matured. Uh, if I can make the example of when COVID hit our shores, the cyber community really rallied together. And we set up a support structure to assist any medical institutions that may get hit with cyber attacks. Uh, to that point, I'm only aware of one such attack on a hospital group that's that's been made public. But for the most part, I suspect companies are actually not reporting cyber breaches to the regulator for fear of negative press or reputational damage. And so when you talk about the threats in terms of it's a little bit different, can you sort of describe what some of those are? One of the biggest ones that we're dealing with is business email compromise. And through that is ransomware attacks. The second biggest one would be attacks on the mobile banking platforms. Okay. And I know from our discussions as well that you do a lot of research. So I'm really keen if you could share some of your insights around some of the topics that you perhaps researched recently. Sure. Uh, I've been doing some research for, for a good number of years, but I've only just recently started sharing my research. And the last one ended up being a little bit controversial. To give a little bit of background, uh, I live in obviously one of the most unsafe countries in the world, third highest crime rate in the world, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, and as such, we have quite a few parents here who provide the children with tracking watches or GPS watches and tracking devices. And I considered it for my kids, but naturally decided to take them apart first. So what I did was I bought a number of them and uh, took them apart. And uh, what I found out is that they pretty much all contained similar, if not the same, chipset. And each of these chipsets, they could also all be controlled remotely with SMS commands, which allowed the remote user to call the device silently, wipe the phone book, change numbers, turn on Wi-Fi, switch the GPS on or off, within the device off. And this was obviously quite scary, so I dug a bit deeper. Um, my main goal was to intercept the GPS coordinates and manipulate these. And initially, I thought this was improbable because the GPS pro protocol that was being used was encrypted. But later I found a workaround for this and wrote a little microservice to intercept the coordinates and Bob's your uncle, I was managed to do it. Little did I know, this was, there, was, there was already some really cool open source GPS tracking software available, so I switched to that after. Um, that being said, I considered the results to be potentially harmful and decided not to disclose everything publicly. I did do a talk on it, however. Potential for misuse on these products has been highlighted before, so it's not anything that's new to the scene. With regards to research that I'm doing lately, I will be assisting a good friend and fellow researcher, Veronica Schmidt. Um, she's quite well known in the biomed or medical hacking community. So for quite some time now, she's been delving into security vulnerabilities and concerns with medical devices. And I really love the work she's doing in this space. And I was delighted when she asked me to join her. So naturally I said yes, and that will be my focus for the next few months. And so when you say medical devices, do you mean defibrillators? Is that what you're talking about? And um, the pacemakers? And is that what you're sort of talking about when you're talking about medical devices? Monitoring devices, defibrillators would be an example of mm -hmm. I, I had another guy recently on our podcast. The episode hasn't launched yet, uh, but it will probably when people are hearing this episode. And uh, he's actually CIO from the health industry and he sort of shared his opinion this was before COVID had actually happened and he shared his opinion on what he thinks in terms of IoT around the health sector moving forward and just health in general what are some of your thoughts from an IoT perspective um, moving forward because ultimately I understand why people are developing these types of devices but with that also come to the territory of potentially vulnerabilities that could go wrong and potentially kill somebody Right. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think IoT devices have become generally a lot more ubiquitous and a lot smarter over time. And I've always stated that this will be the biggest attack vector uh, in the coming years, uh, whether it's mobile devices or these smart embedded devices. Um, for medical devices, it's a scary thought. Um, and uh, that's why it's definitely a field that intrigues me and why I want to study it further and understand it. I'm not sure that these devices themselves have even been assessed or given a risk rating or profile, so to speak. I think they're pretty much sidelined over all other vulnerabilities in the IoT space, um, but it's definitely a, a gap that needs to be filled. So from an IoT perspective in terms of securing these devices, now there's people that there's sort of talks around how to secure some of these devices, but not all of them. What's your opinion on that in terms of where we're sort of at as an industry? Well, the biggest issue I think is, is how they communicate. So most of these devices do communicate over there, whether it's, whether it's Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And in some cases, it's, it's not very secure. 
And the other thing is that they don't have, they're not password protected as well. So dissecting these protocols and making them more secure or encrypted would be generally a good start. You just mentioned that ultimately because they're not password protected. Do you think that we're actually moving in that direction in terms of these devices being secure or more secure than they are at the moment? I mean, you can't say that nothing's 100% secure because we all know that, but what about sort of down the line? Do you think that this will improve or do you think because this space is expanding so quickly, it's hard for people to sort of keep up as it is? Well, if I make the example of these GPS watches and kids tracking watches, the chipset there itself, you can see they've been built without security in mind. It's more for features and usefulness. And they obviously didn't consider that it could be used for malicious purposes. The same would apply for any of these IoT devices. I don't think they were built or they were purpose built rather for use and, and not to have security in mind. But what's going to happen is that these adversaries or cyber adversaries are going to use it and manipulate these devices. These are smart devices in, that have wireless chips in them in some cases. And there have been some use cases where you can um, hack other devices through air-gapped, um, through air-gapped means from these devices. So it's either the security community catches up and profiles these devices and provides input on how to secure them, um, or we're going to see a new cyber uh, threat vector or attack vector based on these devices. I think the other thing is as well, from a manufacturing point of view, I mean, if you're developing something, number one, like people don't necessarily think security first, but then number two, it's, it can be, become a lot more expensive then for these manufacturers to develop a lot of these uh, IT devices. And that's something that I was talking to something the other day and he was just saying like, until that becomes highly regulated, like people just won't do it. Like, unfortunately, yes, from a security perspective, they should, but that would increase their price quite significantly. So would you say that's sort of the case too, from a medical perspective as well? I, I can't speak for the medical uh, devices, but again, I can only speak for the devices that I have already researched on. And I do know that they build these devices in order so that they can be white labeled. So they'll provide you with the chip and then you can either write your own firmware and build in security, mm -hmm. but in some cases, the chip doesn't allow for this. So it, I, I think what happens is that these chip creators or hardware suppliers, what they do is they, they build it. And then they wash their hands and they say, that's it. It's over to you guys to, to bake in security after the fact. And then after the fact is generally not baked in. Yeah, in definitely in the cases that I've dealt with. Okay. All right, great. And so going back to the increase of IoT, as you were saying before, that your sort of prediction would be if we don't sort of combat a lot of what's happening now, that will increase uh, the attack surface. Do you still think that, if that does increase, that we as an industry uh, will be substantially behind, even more so than we are now, because like as I said, like I was reading something the other day, like by 2025, there's going to be like 20 billion IoT devices. I don't think that number's right, but it was something really high, like high, and it and soon. So I'm just really curious to hear your perspective on that. Right. Well, I don't know the exact number. But I have been pretty much in in the front lines when it comes to on the receiving end of a botnet attack that was on IoT devices. So the Mirai botnet um, that attacked Libya some time back uh, was based on a particular uh, flaw in a protocol. Uh, and these affected IoT devices. And 
I think it's only a matter of time before we see similar attacks coming in the future on other devices as they become more ubiquitous. Okay, so all right, let's okay, let's talk about your view on the industry. But before we sort of get into like how we can improve, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on like what's being done right. And as you and I spoke about, there is a lot of negative connotation in terms of uh, all of these things that go bad in security. So before we sort of move to how we can improve our industry uh, from your experience, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on what do you think's being done right. So it's difficult to say specifically, but I think in the context of today, the one thing I have noticed is the movement towards more privacy-centric applications and, and company ethics. And when I say movement, I mean the community calling out companies and respective applications that breach an individual's or group of individuals' privacy. I think it's a combination of both awareness and also due diligence on the part of the company to be able to explain anything that may impact on an individual security. So generally speaking, we, we click on the find when we install an application or we download something, there's always that uh, hundreds of pages of fine print. And usually at the bottom, there, there is where they explain, you know, they're getting all sorts of information on you and they're sending it off and so on and so forth. Um, we're in the mind, and when I say we specifically at Tory Labs, for example, feel it's necessary to bake in privacy by design. Uh, this is why we colloquially call it a, a privacy Trojan horse. But besides that, I think it's the, the duty and responsibility of these companies to explain what the privacy implications are to their consumers or their customers. And um, if they're shielding it behind um, unexplainable or difficult to read or complex wording, um, I don't think they're they're doing a service to their clients or their customers. Would it be a fair assumption to say that they're doing this uh, with intent so people don't understand what they're doing, so they do sign up for the application and they do take their, their privacy away from these people? Of course, it's a possibility. I, I think just reading through um, um, privacy documentation on some of these applications, you can see where it is worded and how it is worded, and usually that's a good indication of whether they're wanting to hide uh, the information that they're going to glean off you. Would you say then in terms of moving forward, organisations, I mean, you touched on it a little bit before, but I want to go a little deeper on this in terms of, what about integrity? So if it's like, okay, I'm a company, I'm obviously holding sensitive information, I'm going to do something with it, I'm going to declare that in a way that it's pretty obvious that that's what we're doing as a company. Because as you said, that things are, are written in a way that doesn't quite make sense, it's very convoluted, uh, and it's hard to sort of really ascertain what all that means unless you're, of course, a privacy professional, you're a lawyer. Do you think that over time companies will just be really honest and upfront with what they're doing in a way that potentially might lose them customers? No, I don't. I think with any application that's good bolts, the business model there is to make money. And if the first and the first instinct is to scare away your customers, you're not going to make any money. So I think it will be definitely community driven and, and driven from the public first, um, rather than the, the companies owning up and having some integrity to, to what uh, information they may be storing of you. So how do you think we balance it out moving forward? So as you said, until the public sort of come forward. And I mean, if you think about the public, right, so forget you and I that would understand this stuff. To an average person, as we all know, people are happy to trade privacy for convenience. 
And so how do we balance it with, yes, of course, uh, these people want to make money, but then we also need to protect our consumers as well in terms of the content, what they're agreeing to signing if they're wanting to sign up with a platform or a service or whatever it may be. How do you think we can find that equilibrium? I think it's a combination of awareness and I think the the community out there, for example, some browsers, Firefox is a good example of that, where they're assisting uh, the consumer uh, on the other end. So it actually tells you, you know, this site is going to be collecting this amount of information or don't go to this site, for example. So I think it'll be a combination of the community uh, as well as awareness that will start spurious in, in the right direction. But until we get to the point where people are actually aware uh, of the impacts of having uh, their privacy violated, uh, we, we're not going to be moving faster in that direction. But do you think we honestly will only because, like, like I mentioned before, these things are written in such a way that it's like unless you are an expert in that space or you're a lawyer, it's really hard to understand. Right. I don't think it's anything that's going to happen anytime soon. My personal opinion is that there, there could be at some later stage a class action suit that could indicate there's a huge privacy violation and that might highlight the need for more stringent um, privacy regulation. But further to that, it's difficult to say. Your assumption would be until we get to that stage, companies will keep operating the way they are to get what they want, which is customers, which is money until uh, there's, I guess, a huge conglomerate of people that sort of uh, start fighting back. Right. Well, COVID-19 was a big wake-up call for a lot of people, specifically in Hong Kong, here in South Africa as well, and in some other countries. So uh, one of the indicators was that the the countries needed to track people who they thought would have COVID-19. So they were using the mobile telecommunications companies to track these people or insist that these users download and install an application that could track their movements. And that was a good indication when people say, well, actually, I don't want you to know where I'm going and what I'm doing. It's my rights, and you shouldn't have to know that. And in combination with some uh, countries who are installing facial recognition uh, cameras as well. But people are starting to get a little more wisened up around, or more, I would rather say more uncomfortable with these intrusions into their privacy and these, uh, I wouldn't say violations as of yet, but yes, just being more uncomfortable with it. Yes, you are right when you say that. I'm just concerned that because of COVID-19, for example, it was kind of like it was the only thing that people were focusing on, so maybe that paid more attention. But once this pandemic thing dissipates, which it will dissipate, do you think that people will sort of just go about their business the way they were before this happened? Because it's kind of like, well, COVID was a, a big sort of uh, boulder in the way for people moving forward. So maybe that focus and channel their sort of attention on, well, what is this app all about? But then I'm worried then that because this whole thing goes away, people won't sort of pay much as attention. I hope not, but I'm just thinking purely from a consumer perspective. Right. I think a history tells a good story about that. <laughs> security through obscurity as well. I think what we'll find is that uh, there might be a bit of legislation that's written in during this process, but when people move back to normal life, of course, it's a huge distraction away from what the original concern was, which was a privacy violation. Mm-hmm. So I do think uh, governments may use this as a good opportunity to uh, write in some legislation that provides them with more ability to intrude in people's lives. But uh, for the general 
person, I think, at the end of the day, is that they'll just be more happy to be able to to go out to the beach again and to pubs and uh, and have a drink with their friends. That's sort of what I was saying. Like maybe it's just because it was the only thing that they could focus on that they're like, well, what does this mean? But, yeah, like when the beaches and pubs and stuff start opening up, like people are like, oh, yeah, what, COVID up? No one cares anymore. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I'm just purely thinking in the mind of, of a consumer. But let's sort of talk about you and I have spoken about this, and I'd, I'd like you to get into details about this and, and talk more freely about what do you think could be improved in the industry? Well, the first thing I've got to call out is definitely the shilling of security products using fight or fear, uncertainty and doubt as the driving motivation. Unfortunately, that continues. It's very discouraging to see. And since COVID-19 has been a huge marked escalation in this and presumably because there's a need to reach sales targets. So my inbox gets filled on a daily basis and almost doubles uh, as days pass. But that aside, there's still a gap when it comes to protecting the consumer or the employee rather than the company. So if I can separate the two, yeah, what I have seen is there's been a market increase almost 100%, in fact, when it comes to mobile banking fraud. So there's been a shift, a lack of a shift from protecting the company rather than the consumer. I agree with you. I, I saw an uptake myself in terms of people not even – having anything to do with COVID and then just making it about COVID. I was interviewed on a podcast. I said it was tasteless and tactless, unless you're actually providing uh, a service like moving staff from an office to home and setting up their home offices. Like you can't base everything off then COVID and trying to make it about COVID and then trying to push the services. So I completely agree. In terms of moving forward with companies and, and getting awareness about their products. Now, there actually are a lot of good products out there that you and I have talked about anyway, but what would be, how would you as an individual, how would you like to go and get information? Because I, I say the similar things to you, like I go and tell people like, hey, uh, your fear mongering and your scaring of people is, is a really bad way to go about selling your products and services because it it comes back to that integrity thing then again as well. Like if you don't buy a product, like you're going to get hacked and stuff like that. There's a lot of that sort of talk going on in the market, which I completely disagree with. And much to your point, people are being bombarded and they feel inundated by people's sales pitches. But what would be an alternative way that you could see moving forward for people to get synthesized information about products and services that are out there that actually do solve some of the problems that people have? Well, first and foremost, it's about the message and how that message is articulated. When you're essentially just taking a whole product sheet and copying and pasting it and putting it into somebody's inbox, that's a massive deterrent initially. You've got to have oh, a gosh. And, yes. and, and uh, create a relationship with the person on the other end. You can't just click on, oh, connect, add, and then here are my products. Would you like to buy them? Also, there's a huge increase in cyber attacks. Uh, and work from home is, is uh, you know, is dangerous and so on and so forth. We get that. We understand it. A lot of people on the receiving ends are in positions where they have to retrench people. And there's a massive amount of job losses that are happening as a result of COVID-19. Now, if you're not going to be able to connect on an emotional level to that person who's actually retrenching those people who's in that position, there's no way that you can be able to sell your product. So going back to that, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the way that you articulate your message 
is the most important thing when selling a product. Understand also that not all products are suited uh, to to the to the individual that you're trying to sell them to so maybe do some due diligence and understand what their company is and how they operate you know i'm not going to need a um a huge gigantic firewall or i'm not going to need a huge ips in place you know so maybe target your, your potential customers a little bit smarter okay so that concerns me before that people are just copying and pasting uh from their product presentation into an email and setting it off like that alone concerns me and scares me. Do you think it's just laziness? Like, why do you think people are doing that? Because, I mean, if I was in that position, uh, I would have the same approach as you, do due diligence, uh, find out uh, a little bit more about the person, try to build a relationship. So to me, it seems obvious, but clearly it's not because you're not the only one saying, I've got another CISO friend over in the US and in he goes really full on about people uh, approaching him and just the way that they approach him. And I think more people need to call these subs people out because I think it does a disservice to our industry. Well, you were a pen tester, so you understand the concept of spray and pray, right? I mean, that's the reason why I got into what I was doing, right? Because I was so sick of that. And that's why I wanted to help people change their messaging when it came to how they sell their products and services because I was so over... Uh, everyone doing the same type of approach and the same old thing. And I wanted to change that landscape. And I, and I think there are a lot of good products out there and there are a lot of good service providers that are out there. But again, I feel people are afraid to do something different. And I wanted to bring modernity to the industry and do it in a way that you're not uh, being invasive towards people and not flooding their inbox and being uh, very sort of aggressive with their approach. And so to me, that's that's why I got into what, what I was doing because I could see that there was a massive gap in the industry and I believe that I could help people with, with these problems because I'm the same as you. Like I look at it and I, I feel embarrassed sometimes the way people operate like online or how they how they approach things, how they, how they talk to people. It's just – it's really just not on. Right. I'm not generally dismissive where, when I speak to these people. You know, I, I'm quite polite and I say, no, thank you. That's not for me. But since the start of COVID-19, I actually had two cold calls um, via the phone. I'm not sure how they got my number either, but immediately tried to uh, shove product down my throat. And, and that I take exception to. And again, just going back to my point is where it's it's turning into more spray and pray is that they're counting a huge amount of people and hoping that out of that hundred, one of them, they'll might get a sell. Mm, yeah, I know. And I, I really hope that starts to change now, in particular because of COVID-19, people can't go and see people face to face. So I think they've just got to have an easier way of getting in front of people. And it's definitely not a finding people's numbers randomly and calling them up and, and, and doing that. So um, I, I hope that people listening can, if they are doing that, they should stop doing that and take a more sophisticated approach. So let's talk about Tari Labs. Now, I, I mean, what you guys do is really, really fascinating and really, really interesting. So I'd love for you to give a bit of an overview about what you guys do and also part of the reason why you moved across to work for these guys. Right. So I, it's quite technical, but I'll explain in simple terms for the listeners. Um, but essentially what Tori Labs is, is it's, uh, it's a blockchain protocol that's designed for digital assets. So think for a moment of in-game items or concert tickets or digital collectibles or even in-game currency. The great thing about it is that essentially you have you can have provenance and this increases the value of a digital asset. So it lives on the blockchain and it can be transferred between owners. 
So the, and the the Tari blockchain provides for this while being inherently private by default. It's, it's also fully open source and a community project. So we get fantastic feedback from others and other leaders in the space. How I became part of the team? Well, when I met with the founders of Tari, I, I knew instantly they had the right drive and aspirations. And for me, when joining a company, it's incredibly important that you agree with the values and ethos of that company. And Tori certainly embodies that culture, and they put a lot of effort into finding individuals who are like-minded. We care about what we're building, and we care about the community it's meant for. Oh, I totally agree with you, and I think that uh, if I were to ever go back and work for anyone, uh, which I probably won't, uh, that would be a big driver. And I think that when when people have the same sort of goals and vision and they've got this this drive about making change, I would say. I think to me that's a, it's a really important factor as to why I would go work for someone as well. So I really appreciate that. But let's, uh, let's talk about, lastly, let's talk about where do you believe as an industry we need to be and why do you believe uh, we're operating, I'd say, independently, like independent silos rather than together? Right. So this is something that's very prominent here in South Africa, where it has been for quite some time. There's, there's still a fair amount of ego in the cybersecurity community and, dare I say, professional jealousy as well. Um, you can tell by reading up on some very public spats on Twitter that I've seen recently. So I can understand there can be disagreements, but it's also our duty as professionals in the space to maintain some sort of decorum or professionalism. Here in South Africa, we've Again, historically had an issue with splinter groups of cyber professionals operating in silo. But to be honest, I'm glad to say that over the last year, they've started to come together. And we've seen this in events and in community initiatives. So I do have some hope for the future. Um, I do see a positive change. When you say see a positive change, can you define what positive looks like? Right. These splinter groups wouldn't even be talking to each other in the past. It would be more about dissing each other uh, mm -hmm. than finding a common goal. And that common goal is essentially the community or the recipients or customers or clients. Um, and COVID-19 was a good example of that, where we all banded together, irrelevant of where we come from or what institution or what company that we work for, and put our names in the hat and said, look, let's, let's work together to help the, you know, any, potential companies that may be impacted by COVID-19 or may be uh, affected from a result of a cyber breach. Do you think moving forward, as we mentioned before, like once COVID dissipates, do you think that you guys as an industry will still operate like that or do you think people will sort of go back in their ways again? I think it will go back to it. What will happen or what I envisage happening is that there will be new boutique cybersecurity companies that will be isolated from the new friendships that have been created from the old <laughs> battling boutique companies. Mm -hmm. So what will happen again is, again, this dichotomy or this separation between the new and the old, and that's what I envisage happening. So, Gus, I've really appreciated your time today. Um, I learned a lot myself personally, just about your experience and your thoughts on the industry. If people are keen to perhaps ask you a question that I didn't already ask you, how can they go about doing that? 
they can contact me uh, via LinkedIn or they can contact me on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is CryptoGinge. So it's C-R-Y-P-T-0, G-I-N-G-E, because I am a ginger. Uh, alternatively, they can catch me on the Tori Labs uh, Telegram channel. Awesome. Okay. Well, again, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.